You're listening to Music Tectonics. Welcome back to Music Tectonics, where we go beneath the surface of music and tech. I'm your host, Dimitri Vitsa. I'm also the CEO and founder of Rock, Paper, Scissors. We are a music tech PR firm of 14 people based in Bloomington, Indiana, where it's finally cold. Yikes, really cold. Um, and uh, I'm really excited today because I met this fellow that we're going to talk to today a, a couple years back, and I was like, ah, he's got a really cool model, a really cool business model, and, and nobody else seems to be doing what he's doing. And uh, we had him again as one of the finalists at the Music Tectonics Conference this year. We did our first uh, music tech pitch competition. It was called Swimming with Narwhals. And so our guest is Tommy Stalnicht. He's the CEO and founder of Single Music, and he was a part of that. Tommy, you're in Nashville. How's everything going there today? Uh, It's a rainy day and a little chilly, but definitely not as cold as Indiana. Yeah, I don't, I don't, I don't know about this whole winter thing. But then again, I don't like the global warming, so it's kind of, it's, I'm confused. My identity is confused at this point. <laughs> well, it was what sixty something on Thanksgiving, and then the next week it was snowing here. So Tennessee weather is the most fluctuant thing I've ever seen. Yeah, I think we're on similar kind of similar um, kind of uh, weather levels here as well. I don't know if you know Tommy. I was actually born in Nashville. Lived my first uh, twelve years in Nashville, Tennessee. Oh, man, I was born in the D.C. area, so I'm just like everybody else. (laughs) All right, well, let's dig in here, man. It's great to have you. What is Single Music for anyone that doesn't know your company? Uh, In the simplest terms, we make music tools for artist labels and merch companies on the Shopify e-commerce platform. Great. Very direct. And can you tell us a little bit more about like some of the features of Single and, and maybe even start with what was the first feature set that really helped the company take off? Well, the, the background of the company, I, I think it helps to understand. Uh, so I was working for an agency here in Nashville, handling the stores, fan clubs, and websites for a ton of country artists and uh, venues like the Ryman and stuff like that. And at one point, we switched from a proprietary e-commerce platform to Shopify. And when we made that transition, there was a ton of the proprietary tools that we had lost, like chart reporting and being able to do instant grad tracks, selling singles and stuff like that. And so in that transition, I saw that Shopify had an app ecosystem. And so rather than stay at that company and build another set of proprietary tools, I said, why doesn't somebody just make this publicly available? So the, the name single actually came from the idea of just being able to sell single tracks. It's just what my, myself and my co-founder called it. And then that name just kind of stuck when because mm-hmm. the domain was available and we just kind of stuck with it. And then, so the main tool set started out with uh, digital delivery of albums and tracks, uh, automated chart reporting for the US and Canada, and then ultimately the UK, and then being able to bundle digital albums with physical product. So we handled the, the kind of chart reporting distribution, and that was kind of the first feature set. And when you say digital, you mean downloads, MP3s, right? Uh, MP3 and lossless, yes. And mm-hmm. so the, the kind of the main impetus of the idea was and really wanting to bring as many things home. So like making websites for as long as I did, I never really understood why by default you would take your music and send it to a much larger platform that takes a much larger cut and you already have a perfectly good web store where you're selling your merchandise. Right. So yeah, it is like the, the purchase of music, which we can talk about in a little bit, is, is still going strong. But uh, yeah, bringing it into the actual store that they own and trying to have everything in one place. 
makes a ton of sense. And the era when you launched single music and um, folks were starting to use this, bands and artists were starting to use this, was this... Uh, was this was Spotify and, and the streaming services already taking off or was this primary iTunes era? Oh, totally during the streaming era. We got people looked at us like we were crazy because we were launching a download service in 2018. I mean, that was the first year that like we launched on January 1st of 2018 in the, the Shopify app store. So uh, totally in the middle of the streaming era. But the, the main thing for me that I've always said was, look, if, if streaming is going to be which is the future. I mean, mm -hmm. totally. The if, if, Since streaming is the future, you, fans that do want to purchase, rather than defaulting to, to say, iTunes or one of those other places, should be able to get the highest quality lossless audio directly from the artists themselves. So it's just a, a different thinking around downloads yeah. as opposed to just like streaming. But of course, yeah, we know that that's the future. So who became your prime users when you launched this in 2018 and, and following that? Well, it's funny because we, I left my job in 2016 and then we kind of built it in our lack that, well, I had a lot of free time. My co-founder didn't, <laughs> we built it in our free time, uh, and then ended up launching in 2018, but 2017, we kind of had a private beta with like, like I think 50 to hundred different artists, but I can remember specifically like the first users that we had uh, on day one was a preacher based in atlanta and steel panther which was couldn't have been a more of a dichotomy between the people <laughs> that were using us which is steel panther still going strong and one of our, our, our great users even up to our live streaming days and then i think the the preacher lasted about a month with us <laughs> but oh, wow. uh the uh no so it, uh, up to now we have we have about at the beginning we started out slow growth, the the digital side of things. We kind of wanted to hone out a lot of the stuff. It was kind of like a, a public beta. It was in the app store. Anybody could use it, but we wanted to iron out the kinks. And then over time, as we added things like our uh, uh, physical reporting, that was mm -hmm. kind of one of the first jumping off where we could report vinyl and tapes and stuff like that. And actually the first physical record that we reported for was Casey Musgrave's Golden Hour. So our first physical reporting tool was a number one, which is awesome. And then uh, after that, it kind of started, we started seeing more of the momentum of people installing for the reporting tools and, and the stuff. And then ultimately it was the kind of our digital bundling stuff is what really started to set us off. Mm -hmm. So it's mostly, is it mostly independent bands and artists that are using it or these management companies that are bringing a whole roster in labels? What is it? So uh, the path that I took to launch the company was a little bit uh, not the normal way, because if you're going to, no, all right, so coming from the merchandising world and coming from the world of people that, that were actually doing that work, I understood that labels typically aren't, it's changed a little bit more now, aren't the ones that typically are running the stores. It's usually independent merchandisers that have their own rosters. And so I looked at the market and said, okay, labels have the largest amount of artists and management companies typically have a, a good roster set too. But most people aren't focusing on the one that sits in between those, which is the merch company that can have rosters in the hundreds of artists that are running the stores. And it's much easier to get your foot in the door with them than it is to go to the label and work through the behemoth. So when we launched, I specifically focused on going to the merch companies and finding who built stores and, and where they were because... I could speak the language coming from where I came from mm -hmm. and then say, look, I know you guys are probably having these same problems because we had them and we've created solutions for them.
So um, these these were basically companies that were getting hired to build the stores for a lot of different bands and management companies. Yeah, exactly. And in the nature of how Shopify is, um, the the artists that are on it tend to be from kind of the mid to higher tier in the, uh, I guess, in their career. Mm. So we predominantly have, or we have a ton of independent labels and independent artists and one-offs using us, but a good majority of our users are at the highest levels, the Travis Scott's, the Dua Lipa's, those ones. Gotcha. So what are other features that you released since that original set? Is there more to talk about that you guys now offer? Quite a bit. Um, <laughs> The, yeah, so since the, obviously with the, the pandemic, the, we are kind of our biggest tool set that we've launched recently was our live stream ticketing where you can host live streams and directly within your own store and then sell tickets directly to your fans and, and all that stuff too. But we've added some other automations around being able to upsell items. So when somebody buys some, say something like a t-shirt, you can upsell, Hey, do you want a copy of the record? Do you want a ticket to the live stream? We also have uh, another smart receipts tool that we call boost links but basically you can when somebody buys any item from the store say hey do you want to follow me on TikTok or subscribe to me on youtube or and so we have kind of a, a whole feature set of things that can be used independently or in tandem with our other services they kind of all feed off of each other gotcha um by the way i wanted to go back and ask when you talk about physical product does the does the manager label artist have to do the fulfillment or does that work a different way with either shopify or single typically yes but i mean obviously it, it kind of comes down to where you are in the the career thing because going after the merchandisers merchandisers typically either do their own fulfillment or have that in place mm -hmm. so single itself doesn't handle any of the physical product or fulfillments we simply handle the automation reporting and kind of the data side mm -hmm. that was missing around shopify for the music industry so yes you would self-fulfill if you are still doing the like kind of the garage band side of things and you want to fulfill out of your apartment or whatever. But a good portion of our users already have that kind of fulfillment set up. Got it. Yeah. All right. So let's widen out a little bit. What have you observed about music direct to consumer practices and uh, trends in 2020? I mean, you mentioned the live streaming thing. We can talk more about that, but I'm curious, you know, just like, how would you answer that question just broadly first? Well, I'm a big fan of Scott Galloway, a professor at NYU Stern School of Business. And he, his podcast, he kind of harps on the fact that COVID is an accelerant, not necessarily like a change agent. Mm. And so I think what we're really seeing is the kind of much more quick movement into e-commerce and online as opposed to brick and mortar and traditional sales. And obviously in, in our world, brick and mortar, quote unquote, would be the tour, the, the merch booth at the show. And so the changes that I think overall that are just happening is basically everybody. We're just seeing in kind of a different model in the music industry. But basically, it's, it's e-commerce growth, just more, much more traffic to the websites and stores. Obviously, li live streaming being a large portion of that to where that's kind of one of the main things to replace a show right now but a more heavy focus on how do we connect directly to our fans, making sure that when touring does come back, we have those relationships in place, but we can also monetize at the moment because there's really no other way to sell your highest grossing items, which is your merch, other than direct to consumer. Right, so you're seeing people who are leveraging a live stream as a way to upsell and cross sell to that, that, uh, that higher profitable product. 
Oh, absolutely. I mean, one of the, so we took a lot of our, what we learned around bundling digital albums with physical products and brought that over to our ticketing service. So how singles business model works is we don't take a percentage, we take fixed rates. So on an album, it's $2 on an album. And then on a, a live stream ticket, it can also be $2, but we reduce those costs if it's something at volume. But because it's a fixed rate, that means you keep 100% of your merch revenue. And we also built it to where you can bundle tickets just like you could bundle albums with merch. So when we are promoting a show, you can say, hey, here's the, the ticket by itself, or do you want to buy the ticket with a t-shirt that comes with a ticket? And we're seeing a ton of that. And because it's non-commissioned, they're having tons of growth in terms of being able to move merchandise, but use the live stream as just a way to bring eyeballs to the store in order to, to sell more of that stuff. Are you seeing artists turning that type of package into their main revenue stream in 2020? Absolutely. Uh, we have, I know that, I don't know who I can specifically name names to, but so for just because I don't have the approval right off the top of my head, I can tell you that I know of artists that have used our model to take their entire tour uh, merchandise set that they had printed and sell through the entire stock in one show. Wow. So rather than sit on a, to boxes of t-shirts like you would do with your failed college bands, they've been able to take those things, put up a live stream, say, hey, here's our tour merch from the, the tour that we had to cancel, do a live stream and literally sell through all of it. What size show was that? Like how many people came to the live stream? Uh, that one had about five to 6,000 people on that show. And how much merch do you think they sold dollar wise or unit wise? Uh, from a dollar perspective, it's in the close to a million. Uh, oh, wow. Definitely. So the some of the kind ones of a successful show, the, huh? <laughs> yeah, definitely successful. The yeah, I mean, one of the ones that I know that I can talk about is the Under Oath uh, Observatory series. Mm -hmm. They because because Randy Nichols and the team over at Force Management have done uh, a great job in terms of both promoting what they did and kind of showing the path of the way to do a great live stream, and they made more off of that three show series than they did touring than they would normally touring in a year. And wow. so and the specific numbers I don't have right offhand, but it was in the hundreds of thousands of dollars. And it, you can look it up or if you go to Forbes and there's a tons of articles about it. But they were one of our first shows that series that we ran through and it was incredibly well done and on, on the production side of things, but it was definitely very successful in terms of how it was able to, to monetize just merchandise and all the other stuff that they were offering. That doesn't sound just like an accelerant to me. That sounds like a totally different business model, but I guess that you think it would have happened anyway, eventually? Eventually. I mean, yes and no, because I think that I think the gaming world, I mean, although it's mostly on the free side of things, they don't tend to do a ton of ticketing, has just been ahead of the music world in terms of being able to leverage live streams in order to be able to kind of drive a broader brand or however you want to describe it. And I think that music may have eventually come around to that. But sometimes this industry needs to just kind of take a kick uh, in the leg to see the writing on the wall of, hey, there's some things out here that you could be doing to better monetize. And COVID kind of helped with that. It's been a terrible world for obviously everybody in terms of live and everything, but 
if there's any silver lining in it, then it really did show that there's going to be another revenue stream that they can use when touring does resume. I don't think live streaming is going to go away entirely. I think it's just going to change as to another thing that artists will be able to do. So you see it being kind of a hybrid model in the future where people will want to have that physical experience where they're drinking and dancing and falling in love and getting into fights and, uh, and, and as a separate entity that sometimes people will go to live streams because it's not coming to a town near them or they don't feel like going out or whatever, or there might be some unique live stream experience that can't happen in a physical venue. Yeah, exactly. I mean, there's the, uh, extended reality stuff that people are starting to do. Um, but really, I think it comes down to something more simple than that. I mean, the the idea of a world tour, what we've all said for decades, really just means US, UK, uh, Canada, Australia, maybe Japan, maybe a little South America, but the vast majority of the world isn't part of a world tour. Yeah. And so there's nothing that limits a person that's in I don't know, Russia or wherever, from being able to see a show online. And so if there's a major tour, I would love to see music take some cues from, say, like stand-up comedy or something like that, where the last shows on a tour ends up getting live streamed for the world to be able to see, hey, here's all the things that, uh, for all the people that couldn't make it to a physical show because we didn't come to your country, here's the full production value, here's the big show towards the end. So yeah, I think it'll be some kind of hybrid of making it open for more people, being able to, to kind of rewatch a show that you may have been to. So there, there's a ton of ways and creative ways that I think artists are going to be able to leverage it. Has it been strange for you to go from a, a company that primarily supported sales around physical product to being involved in the live side of the business? Honestly, no. Um, the The way that single looks at things, and I think is a little bit different than what externally people might think how we think of things, is we are trying to make tools that help artists succeed on direct-to-consumer. So whatever you can monetize and sell to fans, that's what we want to help artists be able to do directly. Mm -hmm. So rather than defaulting to say like all right, for the music side of things. So we're saying, okay, rather than defaulting to iTunes to sell your music, why don't you bring that home? Or rather than defaulting to an external platform to do your live streams, why wouldn't you just do the live stream directly in your own store? Mm -hmm. So our whole mindset is based around what, what tools can we create? What things can we do that will help them better monetize, but direct and not have to kind of by default send your fans elsewhere, let somebody else own the relationship. We want artists to be able to end-to-end -end control their future, their relationship with fans. So it's, it's kind of the same, it's just a different tool. Got it. So, um, you, you, so you talked about this kind of bundling of live stream tickets with merch, which sounds very powerful. You, you mentioned some really interesting success stories there. Are there any other new use cases emerging in 2020 with the direct-to-consumer music industry? Yeah, I mean, it, sticking on the live stream thing for a second, the we've seen some creative uses around it doing like just Q&As or just doing album listening parties to where you're talking to your fans and then the album is for sale with merchandise and doing bundles that way. Too. Oh, that's and cool. Like being, so the, the main thing that we have seen is just more content-driven 
sales side of things mm -hmm. and live streaming being obviously a big portion of that because people are craving connection and they always want to be able to talk to the artist. And obviously there's the, the meet and greets and things that people have been doing in the past that have moved on to the, the virtual space too. So uh, it's, I think from a, what has changed in other creative things is just creative uses of content to drive the sale of things that are actually sustaining their career while they wait to get back on the road. Right. Yeah. Interesting. No, that's a, that's a really good point. You don't have to necessarily stage a whole concert to engage with folks. And if you're engaging through this kind of bundled platform, you have this upsell opportunity. So it's virtually free or free to get into the, 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 the release party or the Q and a, or, or maybe it's ticketed as well, but it's not an insane price. And then once you're there, you're like, Oh yeah, I do love this band. Why am I not buying the hoodie or the, or the vinyl or, or whatever it is? That's cool. Yeah. A cool model that I saw was Taylor Bennett did a live stream to where he, I think it was like a dollar a ticket or five bucks a ticket or something like that, but, but he took all that money and then he donated it. But so it was a ticketed watch party, which was promoting the album, but the ticket was philanthropic. So it wasn't like he was selling tickets so you could just come to a watch party. He was saying, mm -hmm. no, like you can join the watch party, but let's turn it into something that has actual value out of just short of coming to see and us talk about the record. Oh, that's really cool. I like it. Yeah. So I want to go back to kind of a business thing. What What's it like building a company on top of someone else's platform? I, I ask that because, you know, I've been in the industry for 20 plus years and I've seen companies that were apps inside Facebook or apps inside Spotify and then something changed and all of a sudden their business model shifted. So I'm curious what that's been like for you. Well, Shopify has been a great partner for us. And I, I think that it's important to understand the distinction between building an app for something like Facebook versus building an app for something like Shopify. Uh, Facebook's monetization of applications and their yeah, the way that they run that, that company is just, it's an entirely different business model than somebody that's running an app ecosystem. Right. Because let's say, say you have the app store on Apple, they have a vested interest and in not necessarily, I mean, and they, they have done it. There's examples of it, but there's, they take that 30% cut of apps. So they basically own 30% of every company that's running on their app store. They only and own so, the profit on it. They don't. They don't own the expense of running it. <laughs> exactly. So they like they own the rails on that. So for that argument, it can be yeah. If they own the rails, I mean, really, you are in, indentured to Apple on that one. And then on Shopify side of things, they have a, a, an app cut that's about twenty percent that we have to pay. And so they have. It's less of an incentive to come in and completely destroy the app ecosystem right. because that erodes trust in when you're trying to have it be an app ecosystem, whereas Facebook and everybody's just like, here's APIs and, and go for it. But it's, so it's, it's a little bit different. Yeah. The, the other side of it though, is that single itself is actually built to be platform agnostic. And so we may or may not build integrations to other platforms in the future. It's kind of up to us whether or not we want to do that. But the main reason why we haven't is more people are going to Shopify than away. And so it doesn't make a ton of sense for us to spread ourselves thin and worry about those other platforms when there's plenty of artists that are moving to Shopify that need better tools and we can improve our stuff there. And then we can kind of, if we feel like we've quote unquote conquered all music that's on this platform that has close to a million uh, stores on it. So it's been great. Honestly, it's allowed us to innovate more quickly because we don't have to worry about uh, really mundane things like 
if there's a bug in your shipping and stuff like that, if you have a completely vertically integrated e-com platform. So it, it's a, enabled us to, to move, play. We shifted into live streams. We built that in a couple of weeks and we're able to get that going because we didn't have to worry about all of this front end stuff. So it's been quite good. Why do you think Shopify has been so successful? I think it comes back to that that app ecosystem side of things. The the extendability is incredible because if you here here's a perfect example. So for, on the live stream side of things, we some other platforms will say, look, you keep 100% of your revenue, but really what they're doing is they're charging 15% to the fan. So it's not it's effectively the same thing. Like if you wanted to charge uh, like 10 bucks to the fan, there's the the fan or the fan's still going to end up paying more than 10 bucks. So for when single comes along and we have our model of it's a dollar a ticket or $2 a ticket, depending on the volume, the, the main thing that we said was, okay, you, there's other apps out there that will allow you to choose what model you want. Do you want to absorb it into the cost of the bundle, into the cost of the ticket, or do you want to charge it to the fan? Mm -hmm. And because that already existed, we didn't have to build that ourselves. You. you can just extend that, whatever. And then if people want to do things like pay what you want or integrate it, the sales to things like TikTok and stuff like that, all of those integrations are already in place. So we don't have to build them, but we can say, look, what creative vision do you have around what you're trying to do? Single will be, can be the four, like Shopify and single can be at the forefront of putting those things together. And then here's some other like smaller little integrations that we can do to, to get your vision across exactly how you wanted it. Yeah. So that's one part of it. And then the other aspect of it, I think, is just simply the financial model of it. Because uh, Shopify itself is subscription-based. And so rather than take a percentage of your sale, like some other platforms do, especially in music, it's a fixed, you pay 30 bucks per month. And you're still always going to have the uh, payment processor charging, but that's you'll still have that even on the platforms that charge you a percentage of your sales. Right. So... Once you get to a particular point, um, when you when you take a platform that takes a percentage, and you, let's just compare it to Shopify, let's say it's like ten percent or something like that. If you sell three hundred dollars worth of merch in or any items during a, a month, then you are that's thirty dollars in commissions you would have paid to that platform, and then you're going to continue to pay ten percent off the top in perpetuity, regardless of what you sell. Whereas if you had done that on Shopify, you would pay your thirty dollars a month, and then that's it. You just mm -hmm. keep 100% of your merch sales. So once you reach that $300 threshold, it ends up being way more advantageous for you to be on something like a Shopify that's not taking a percent of right. your gross profit than to just give somebody that in perpetuity. And so we're trying to combat the idea for certain people that it's like, yeah, well, there's a, a cost that I got to pay every month. Well, Yes, there's a cost to every business has to pay every month. But when you look at it in just simply brass tax math, you are paying more to give that percentage than if you had just paid that 30 bucks. Right. Which is probably why earlier in the interview, you mentioned that you kind of have middle to top tier artists in the mix because you have to sell a certain amount before you'd say that overhead was is a diminishing percentage of, of gross exactly. revenue. Yeah, makes sense. So it's the it's kind of a it's a it's a blessing and a curse. We obviously want to have our stuff to be able to be used by independent uh, artists, and they our whole idea has been: look, if you want to use the same tools that Live Nation merch is using and Travis Scott is using, you can use Single and Shopify. I mean, that's exactly what it is. Yeah, and the barrier to entry, albeit low, is still a barrier for some artists that don't. I don't want to get there. So we understand that. 
So what we need to for them to understand is that once you reach a particular threshold, you should move over. It is the time for you to start keeping more of your revenue and handling these things in a, in a different place than you have been. Right. Makes sense. So speaking of independent artists, what's your top advice for artists and their teams that are building their websites? I think about this one on uh, constantly. Yeah, the, I'm sure. <laughs> so I always use the antidote of Apple. So I can't remember how long ago. I think it was like five, six years ago. They Apple used to have it to where there was an Apple store online. There was the Apple store online, and then there was the Apple website. And when you click to buy something, it would take you out of the website and take you over to the store. So they were two different environments. And then at one point, they combined those two things together. So if you go to the Apple website now, you'll notice that on any page that you're looking at the information around something, you can click buy, and it takes you, like you can add things to your cart directly on Apple's website. Mm. So it's re reducing the amount of click through to be able to convert, to buy something from them. I have always said, why separate the merch store from the main website when those could be built on the same platform? Why are artists constantly separating those two things? When you could have it to where you go to an artist's website and here's the tour dates and beneath it's the merch and you can more easily just have everything in one place. So it's that constant idea of bringing things home, having it all in one. So if I want to go and find out where somebody is playing a tour, hey, look, this is where they're playing. Oh, look, they added new merchandise. And so you're just driving more people rather than saying, like, if they come to see the tour, they don't even know that you've released new things. Yeah. Yeah, it makes sense. So what, what do you see as cutting edge trends in the direct-to-consumer music tactic world? Are, are there some things we haven't talked about yet that you think are kind of emerging, people are testing out, starting to see some good early traction on? Well, because Billboard changed the rules around the, the bundling counting on the charts, we're seeing a lot of adoption of upselling as an option. So that when they buy the, the sweatshirt, hey, instantly saying, hey, do you want to buy the album for $350? Because the, the minimum threshold is $349. And so we see a lot of that where you can discount specifically the album when somebody is buying another item. Uh, similar thing around like live streams, since those don't really have any implication on the charts whatsoever, you can do the, hey, when somebody buys an album, hey, th come to the show kind of thing. So there's, there's a lot of different ways that you can uh, to, to do it that way. And Wait, then, Tommy, will you explain what, what was the change with the charts? Uh, so there was a lot of... Basically, you could take a T-shirt, and if, if a digital record what came with that shirt, even if it, since the, the fan was trying to buy the T-shirt and the, the bundle together, that counted as a sale on the Billboard charts. Mm -hmm. And so there were certain artists that gamified that and kind of turned it in, so Billboard kind of took a, a fairly heavy-handed approach to it and just said, okay, look, we're just not going to have do that whatsoever. Uh, but there's... like. The UK handles it differently than, say, Billboard, where if somebody actually like downloads the record, then that counts because they wanted to get the record. So it, mm -hmm. it's kind of uh, the, the rules are different all over the place. But Billboard mm -hmm. just said, no, we just don't do bundling at all. So now you can't do anything with a bundle or you just have to price it at a, at a minimum? Well, you can't bundle like you can bundle as much as you want to be able to sell music and oh, make yeah. money off of your music, but it just won't count on the charts. Yeah. Gotcha. Any other interesting trends that are emerging on direct-to-fan sale tactics? I mean, some of the a lot of the things that we're working on is based around data, using uh -huh. the existing data that you have on your fans to be able to drive specific things. So, 
did these fans buy the the last record? Did these fans buy the last? Excuse me, the last live stream? Did these mm-hmm. fans like if they're in a particular location? So I think right now it's based around how can we sell tickets to virtual events, but those virtual events and being able to kind of gather that data is going to be imperative to when live comes back to be able to say, okay, these people bought my tickets and or bought came to my live stream and they were in Des Moines or something like that. And so you'll be able to have a, a good data set to be able to say, okay, these are the places that I need to go because these are the people that supported me the most during one of the worst times in an artist's career. So it's really about collecting primary data and uh, and being able to segment and retarget your audience. Exactly. I mean, direct-to-consumer, the beauty of it is that you actually own those relationships as opposed to the current model where Apple owns those relationships or Spotify owns those relationships. And you don't know exactly who the fans are short of, I got a ton of people that listen to me in LA. Well, who is in LA and who's actually spending money? And that's where I think the future is going to come with direct-to-consumer. You know, speaking of Spotify and Apple, how should artists and labels think about direct-to-consumer as it relates to the music streaming services? Um, like you said at the beginning, a lot of people are just pushing all their all their listens off to these streaming services where you don't get the data, where you don't have control of pricing, but yet the streaming services are the model of the, of the, the future and the now, as you said. So how, how should they be thinking about that aspect of that relationship? Well, I don't want to misquote, but I think that I'm right that this was a Troy Carter quote that I heard at one point. It just said that music is used to sell everything but music. <laughs> and it's true. I mean, brands use music to sell cars and Apple used music to sell iPods and all that kind of thing. And I think artists are waking up to realize that their music needs to be used to sell the rest of their things. So, I mean, that is concert tickets. That is merchandise. That is your higher margin items. And so I think streaming is going to become the way that you get to you get to more audience. It's it's a much wider net that you get to cast in terms of introducing yourself to people. But once you've introduced them to you, you need to be able to give them a place that they can go to to support you further. And a lot of the streaming services are just consumption based. So here's where you can go to listen to the music and then they link out to other places. And so the the main thing should be okay, you can go here, this is where you can consume it, this is where you're going to consume it, but once we've established a relationship with you and you want to learn more about me, where are you going and when you go there, is there enough there that you can help me continue to be an artist? Should um, should artists not release all their content on the streaming services and hold some of it back so that you have to go to their website? Well, it depends on what kind of content. Music-wise, I probably wouldn't recommend that just because fans... the. The behavior is there already. Fans are going to go and consume it on the streaming services. And so withholding content, I don't think is necessarily, music content is necessarily the best thing. I think that you could withhold certain video content from some platforms. I think you can withhold certain experiences from those platforms. So there's an incentive for people to come to your website. Um, There's, I mean, you could do something to where there's an a track that's only available, like a singular track or something like that, uh, which would be withholding music. So going back on what I previously said, but for the most part, I would say leave it up there. If you're going to do that, have it only be sparingly done or more heavily focused on unique content or unique items or unique experiences that you can do D to C rather than take it away. So what you're really saying is treat the streaming services a bit like radio with a little bit of payment on the streams. Yes. 
and but be prepared to monetize with other stuff because you can't count on streaming as the main revenue stream pretty much exactly that the there's i mean again streaming is the future there's no debating that whatsoever but where that and to your previous question about how does it feel to be when we went from a download company into doing live streaming and stuff like that that's why our mantra has always been it's not about the the individual products that we have or the services that we have it's about the whole idea of fixing d2c in music as a whole and yeah. the way the way that we see to do that is through the storefront and bringing the things to artists where they already are rather than trying to make them change and create this new thing where we have to tell every fan to come to singles so fans can get all the, or so artists can get all these benefits so we want to bring the benefits to those artists I mean, it'd be pretty cool if, um, I mean, I have no idea what your plans are, Tommy, but it'd be pretty cool if a Spotify-like service bought a single music-like service and you're streaming music under the normal model and then you want to upsell directly within the streaming services and boom, you're, you're at the artist's shop powered by single. I mean, that, that, that would take away a lot of friction, wouldn't it? <laughs> I haven't not thought about that. The- <laughs> But so, but again, look, a lot of the things that we have planned, it would be amazing if something like that happened in the future. I think that a lot more of what my vision of what we've been trying to do is going to become clear over the next few months. We have a lot of stuff that we've been able to work on while during this crazy year. Our team has grown during a pandemic, so I feel blessed to be able to say that. And so it's my vision and dream has always been to just give artists or just give away for fans to be able to support artists more directly, be more fair to artists, but do it in a way that you still have a sustainable business model on the business side of things. There's no reason why it can't be mutually beneficial. And so I would love to see something like that to where you have streaming in one place and you have all the services that single can offer and you have merchandise in one place and linking it all together. That That's definitely a vision and dream of mine. Yeah. Very cool. So besides Single and Shopify, what other tools do you recommend to artists and labels? I'm a big fan of what the guys over at Tone Den are doing around like data usage. Like we have some, it's funny because with our, uh, our boosting service, which is that smart receipt thing, we do have landing pages and stuff like that. But some other people like Tone Den have done it better than us. And we can focus on some of the other things that we're doing. So it, we have competing services, but we have a lot of complementary things. They're ad uh, they're basically their their ad um, platform being able to to do lookalike audiences and things on Instagram and Facebook. I think are phenomenal. I, I love what those guys are doing on that side. Uh, TikTok monetization, both between integrations, not to talk about Shopify, but their integration with Shopify now. I think that's going to be a major game changer in the future. But also the microtransaction stuff that's happening on TikTok, I think is definitely something that artists and labels need to be taking advantage how, of. How does that work? Well, you can like tip and stuff like that through TikTok uh-huh. and fan, like using points and uh, they have uh, credits and things like that that you can uh, kind of share back and forth between creators and, and fans and, and people that are watching. So I think that's going to be a big That's one. happening like, within the TikTok ecosystem. That's not a separate tool, right? Correct. Yeah, yeah got it. And, the, and then the, the Shopify thing with TikTok is that you can link merchandise that you have available in Shopify to a TikTok. So that could be in in a roundabout way tickets and experiences that are driven by single because fan buys a t-shirt that comes with a ticket, then a TikTok monetization comes through and that was able to sell a live stream. So there's a lot of really like 
long-term ways that you can unify uh, the 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 fans around okay what's happening on social can lead into things that are happening on my d2c side so linking those things together i think is really important uh right now given that everybody's just starving for content i think that that's why that that's such a big one um what else yeah any other tools or i really from a creator side of things because i I would love to say that I'm still a musician and I played in college and a lot of stuff, but I love what uh, the, the splice guys are doing and being able to, to kind of rent VSTs and stuff like that. So there's, there's so many things out there that are happening right now that keeping your head around all of them is difficult. Yeah, it is really cool. Yeah. And there's a ton on that music creation side, the producer um, side, uh, the collaborative side, um, lots of lots of cool stuff we've talked about on other episodes. It's kind of like um, it's sort of like a, a, an endless infinite pool of possibilities, which is really interesting, um, which I think just creates more and more opportunities for people to make music and other other contact. I mean, video stuff, too. Um, you're talking about other types of content beyond just the music, too. So what about trends? Are there any before we wrap up here, any emerging trends you think artists managers labels should be keeping an eye on in the next five years as you push it out a little further doesn't have to be specific tools or practices but just things like that well i i I think it goes back to that previous thing i'm talking about a hybrid model between streaming and live Um, but the from a trend perspective i think you're going to see more of experiences that are so if you buy say buy a ticket to a festival i think you'll see more things around and you can save uh, shows from going to like you buy a ticket you can go to a a festival and because you couldn't make it to everybody that ticket can unlock being able to go back and stream the other shows that were at that festival and so i think that there's going to be a lot of unlocking of even because festivals have been huge on the touring side of things, but no human can go to a festival and see everything. So you're spending thousands of dollars on the experience, but you're only able to see a limited set of the content. So I think Mm. there's going to see an unlocking of that content uh, on the digital side of things. And then on the data side, especially in order, I think the people that best utilize data and the relationships that they have with their fans are going to be the ones that are able to get back out on the road and get people back in seats much more effectively than people that aren't looking at that. They just go with the traditional model of, hey, we're playing in this space. You, you're you gonna want to reach out to the people that are stuck at home because people are wary to leave. And so they want, they're gonna want to feel that connection of, hey, we really want you to come out and we'd love to see you again at the venue. Yeah. Those are, those are really great points. Wow, Tommy, this has been a blast. I really appreciate your transparency about your business um, and kind of uh, your advocacy around um, sort of artist-friendly commerce and, and everything you're building. I mean, it's, you know, from the moment that I met you and I heard about what you're doing, I was like, oh, this is interesting. I don't think a lot of people are tracking on this. You know, it is fairly B2B and uh, under the hood, but you're thinking about it in ways that I think are extremely um, current and, and fresh and really focused on helping folks make a living. So I think it's awesome. I appreciate that. I mean, ultimately, that's the goal. I really hope that we're able to help artists make money and have sustainable careers. And and I think we're on the right path to doing that. And so single music is at singlemusic.com. Are there any final shout outs uh, you'd like to make before we wrap up? Oh, man, everyone stay safe. It's obviously right now we've got things are going. It's a weird time. And we want everybody to to stay safe, happy and healthy. Uh, Give a shout out to my team, my co-founder, Taylor. Joe, Michael, the rest of the guys over here, making sure that uh, keeping the, the wheels on as we go with this growth through live stream and stuff. But so 
more so everybody stay happy, healthy, and, and thanks to, to everybody on my team that's helping us to kind of get through it. Awesome. Tommy, thanks so much for joining me. Thank you so much for having me. And thank you for listening to the Music Tectonics podcast. Please hit subscribe, but also come over to the Music Tectonics app. It's available in the iOS or Google Play app stores. Um, It's a community of innovators in music and technology. We've got conversations going. You can ask questions. You can get a news feed of music industry stuff, as well as when we put out new podcasts or when we do live events and so forth. And do stay safe. We're going to take a couple weeks off from Music Tectonics, so enjoy the last couple weeks of the year. And we'll be back in January with the news roundup from 2020. Thanks for listening. You're listening to Music Tectonics.